are in week three of a sermon series that's entitled, Sorry Not Sorry. Today, uh, we're talking about letting the skeletons out of our closet. How many of you guys have been at church for the last couple weeks? Maybe one of them. I know it's vacation season uh, to hear what we're talking about in this series, Sorry Not Sorry. That's four people. I'm glad you four were at church. That means everyone is a visitor today. Welcome to Journey Church. Just hit rewind and reference everything I just said for the last five minutes. Our nation is in chaos. It seems like our world's in chaos. How many of you guys feel it? At all of our campus, how many of you feel it? It feels like people hate each other. It feels like a powder keg. A powder keg is something that's ready to explode. When I was a kid, my dad used to tell me stories. He grew up in Detroit in the 1960s about race riots at a school. So he grew up in a school uh, during that time when civil rights was happening. There was race riots at a school. So he has all these stories about hiding up on bleachers to escape the violence or school being canceled because someone got knifed. But Huge acts of violence at his school and the schools around because our nation was exploding. It was exploding a lot of times for just cause. I never thought I would see a day when my children would see those kind of things. How many of you are with me? No matter how you fall on the sides of the issue, because I don't care less. Uh, I, I'm, I'm apolitical when it comes to all this stuff. I have my opinions, but they're not for today. I would never saw, thought my kids would see this kind of stuff in the news. Group against group, we were so divided with race, uh, with ethnicity, with sexual preference, with anything else, one group yelling at another group about what matters and what doesn't matter. I never thought I would see a nation divided. And frankly, I think it's from the enemy. I think it's from Satan. I think Satan seeks to cause division and God seeks unity. Here's what I believe the Bible says. And here's why I think what we're talking about in these next couple weeks and last week is so appropriate. Because where Satan seeks to, to divide, God says, if you have a heartbeat in your chest and breath in your lungs, you're part of humanity. That means you're created in the image and likeness of God. And that means you're broken. You're not black. You're not white. You're not gay. You're not straight. You're not anything else that defines you. His word says there's no slave, nor Greek, nor male, nor female. That means there's no division between you. You and I and everyone watching and listening at our campuses, you're just a broken per a person in need of grace. That's who we are. Any other division I think that will be placed upon us is placed upon us by the enemy. God seeks to unite us. But last week, we learned about what it's like to carry the victim mentality through your life. Now, if you were here, you might remember uh, what that's like, the victim mentality. Maybe something was done to you that you can't shake. Maybe there was great injustice that happened in your life. You were molested, you were raped, something happened to you. That's all very valid. You're allowed to have hurts from that. But what God wants to do is that God wants to set you free from that mentality because Pastor Steve taught us that you're an overcomer, that we can overcome things through Jesus Christ. We can overcome things because we understand what he accomplished for us on the cross that was bigger than anything that was done to us in the past. But today I want to talk to you about guilt and shame because no matter if you are a Christian in our campuses today or you're not, I think we all can carry around a fair amount of guilt and shame about our past or maybe even what we're in right now that God wants to set us free from. It's always like a weight that hangs around your neck. Even right now as I talk about it, you're going back to maybe some of the lifestyle choices you made or maybe things that were done to you or, or maybe things that no one else knows about. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's an addiction that, that you kept secret that it's always there somewhere underneath the surface. See, coming into this place with guilt and shame is okay. You are in a safe spot in Limerick and Plymouth meeting. You are in a safe place today if you come in to this house today with guilt and shame. It's just not okay to leave that way. God wants better for you. We have a term that we throw on our, in our culture called dead weight. How many have heard that term? I'll just kind of try to throw it out there. If you ever played sports and you had someone on your team, like in basketball, who just wouldn't hustle, wouldn't rebound, wouldn't go after the ball, that person became dead weight. 
If you ever worked uh, with somebody, uh, just you and a partner on a job, I used to have a, a, a guy I worked with who was my friend, but he became my enemy because he would want to sleep all day. So he wasn't my partner. He became dead weight. I had to carry him, and he still got paid. It was annoying. Well, that actually came from a real thing. So uh, I think if you're, a, if you're a visual learner, I have an illustration for you. I want to bring up my friend James. Noah is going to bring James up. Uh, James is really flexible, as you can see. He, is, uh, he does yoga and Pilates. Let's go ahead and stretch him back here. Okay, sometimes these things help us learn. They help me learn. I'm a visual learner. This is James. I named James. I named him because I own him because I bought him from Amazon. You can buy anything from Amazon. Uh, I bought a different James. He turned out to be a cutout. And a cutout just wouldn't have the effect. Then I tried to buy a different James who was, had rotting flesh. It looked like The Walking Dead. But uh, that was really expensive. So if you're looking for something like James or someone like James, you should just go with the skeleton because this is an affordable price. Um, hi. So in Roman times, the Roman Empire was an empire that existed. They ruled the world from about 300, 350 years before Jesus to about 300, 350 years afterwards. They, were, they dominated the known world at the time. They built roads. They had all kinds of systems in place. They were the bosses. They did some very creative things to punish people. One of them we know about very well. One of them is crucifixion. We know about crucifixion. Romans did not invent that, actually, but they perfected crucifixion. They perfected it on our Savior. They crucified thousands of people on a cross, but we remember one of them, and his name was Jesus. Romans perfected that. They also had another way of punishing somebody for murder, and that was to be strapped a dead body. Let's say I murdered James. Uh, for whatever reason, he talked to me in a way that he shouldn't have talked to, so he got smacked up. So you talk up, you get smacked up. James is dead. Then I would have to tie James to my back. So James would be on my back. I'm going to mess up my microphone, James. You're dead because I killed you. It doesn't matter. Get your arm over here, James. All right, so James is on my back now. So James is on my back, and the punishment would be that he'd have to ride around on my back, strapped to me with my shirt off. So eventually, i carry around this shame, what I did to James, everyone knew about because dead James was on my back. And then also, dead James would then kill me. He was dead, but his rotting flesh filled with maggots and pus coming out and poisons leaching out of his skin, his hair growing, his nails growing, because that happened. Uh, he would smell, well, he'd be covered in excrement, because that's what happens after you die. Everything that was inside of James, blood, feces, everything, would leach out onto me, slowly killing me in the process. That would embarrass me, too, because I'd be covered with dead James. That would also kill me in a really horrible, agonizing way. This is a brutal form of punishment. This was a constant reminder of guilt and shame. We'll use you again, James, but right now, James, put down. Let's give a hand for Noah. Noah took James from me right now. You don't have to carry that weight, Noah. Jesus came to set you free. Every second of your life, your last remaining time, is a constant reminder of what you did. I think it's funny to call him James, but I think you and I have different names for James. It could be a label that would carry, addict. Someone who had an affair, adulterer. Slut, gay, whatever that is, you have labels that have been put on you. Maybe you put them there yourself. Maybe it's something that, that was done to you that you carry around a weight that actually isn't yours to carry. Sometimes it's light. Sometimes it's heavy. It's always there. You might be a Christian in here, and you don't understand the freedom that's found in Christ. So I'm talking to everyone right now. You might be a Christian, you made a decision to follow Jesus, but you don't understand that Christ came to set you free for freedom's sake, that he doesn't want you, you don't need to carry around your sin and sin and your shame anymore. I think you can't understand the freedom that's found in Christ until you understand what God expects from you.
So a lot of times we walk around in life blind. We don't set clear expectations for ourselves or other people, but I always think clear expectations set up people for winning. How many of us have ever overseen our campus, overseen a group of people do anything, whether you're a boss, a manager, you ever done anything where you needed other people's input, you needed to kind of manage that? You might oversee a family, anything like that. Well, at my job, I oversee the worship and production teams at Journey, uh, and I've learned the really hard way, to my own detriment, that when I don't set clear expectations for somebody uh, and they don't meet them, it's not that person's fault, it is my fault. If I don't have it written down, if they don't understand what a win looks like and what it doesn't look like, they're not the dummy, I'm the dummy. So when this started, uh, it was very unorganized, I was very unorganized. Uh, so I wouldn't tell people ahead of time, hey, here's the songs, learn the songs, here's the charts of the songs, here's what we're doing, this is how you play the song, uh, come ready, do this, do that, here's the importance behind that. None of that was there because, number one, we had three people. No one came to church then. But I just also didn't know about that. So when someone came prepared for church, they weren't prepared. They weren't ready. They didn't know their songs. And then I would get mad at them, and I would act rude to them or act upset at them. They didn't know their guitar parts. I know my guitar parts. What's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with them. There's something wrong with me because I didn't set clear expectations. I didn't define for them what it looked like to have a win. So it's not their fault. It's my fault. Sometimes we assume that the people we're with, they just know their jobs. They instinctively know how to do it. But that isn't the truth if you work with people. Like, I'm going to give you a really clear, concrete example. Right now, uh, at this back camera is my friend Steven. Is that you, Steven? It's really bright. This is Steven at the back camera. Let's give a hand for Steven. He's running the camera. Yeah. Other campuses, Limerick and Plymouth Meeting, this is how you're seeing church right now. So Steve, he understands the functions of that camera. He understands the iris, the color balance, all those things. He knows how to set the shot and when to set the shot. But if we never tell Stephen the importance of that shot, he has no incentive to make it good. He just sees it on these screens and he says, all right, whatever, it's just going to mess up these screens. He, if he doesn't understand that church at other places going at the same time depend on you to do what you're supposed to do to be able to have church, I haven't set clear expectations. He's going to miss them. In every relationship that we have, we have expectations. If you're married, you might have expectations on your wife. I have expectations on my wife that she won't cheat on me. You might have the same expectations on your wife or husband. I have expectations on my kids that they're going to have some sense. Most times they don't have some sense, but definitions, they matter. So I'm going to define some words. I like words. You're going to like words today. So I'm going to define some words for you. Guilt. I want you to hear this. Guilt. Guilt comes when we try to meet false expectations that we think we have to meet. Guilt. You might carry that today. It comes when we try to meet false expectations that we think we have to meet. I want us to understand and talk about maybe some of the false expectations that we have today because we all bring things to, undertake, things to the table, things that we might take for granted, things that we might think we know about God or know about church or know about Jesus, but if they're not defined for us, we're going to be on a road we don't want to be on. And where I want to start is in 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible app, you can follow with me. If not, it's going to be on the screen. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was rec reconciling the word to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we ever get to that place where the new creation has come? We understand what does God 
expect from me? I want to tell you four ways. The first way I think we understand what God expects from us is that God does not expect you to replay your past. God doesn't expect you to replay your past. But that seems to be what we do. I know I do it. I think about my worst moment, my greatest failing, the thing that I'm embarrassed about, and I put it on a loop in my brain. How many of you guys do the same thing at our campuses? You put it on a loop in your brain. You can't stop it. You can't change the outcome. But underneath the surface, it is always playing your greatest mistake underneath there on a loop, thinking that somehow, in some twisted sense, it's going to change. But the outcome never changes. All you're left is with the guilt of that decision and the shame of it. We let our thoughts consume us. How many of you guys have ever been consumed by anxiety by your thoughts? Consumed by doubt and fear and self-loathing really is what that is. It's self-loathing. I want you to listen to this story. I also want to be really clear before I get into this. If there's kids at our campuses right now who are under the age of 12, uh, we're going to get really truthful for a minute. We're going to say things that are probably not appropriate for someone under the age of 12. Journey Kids is the place for you. So I'm going to give you a second if you need to take someone who's under 12 out of the auditorium uh, to do that now because this is about to get a little real. Let's listen to the story. Rebecca Thompson fell twice from the Fremont Canyon Bridge, but she died both times. The first fall broke her heart, the second broke her neck. She was only 18 years of age when she and her 11-year-old sister were abducted by two men near a store in Casper, Wyoming. They drove the girls 40 miles southwest of the Fremont Canyon Bridge, a one-lane steel beam structure rising 112 feet above the North Platte River. The men brutally beat and raped Rebecca. She somehow convinced them not to do the same to her sister Amy. Both were thrown over the bridge into a narrow gorge. Amy died when she landed on a rock near the river. But Rebecca slammed into a ledge and was ricocheted into deeper water. With a hip fractured in five places, she struggled to the shore. To protect her body from the cold, she wedged herself between two rocks and waited until dawn. But the dawn never came for Rebecca. The sun came up and she was found. The physicians treated her wounds and the courts imprisoned her attackers. Life continued, but the dawn never came. The blackness of her night of horrors lingered. She was never able to climb out of the canyon. So in September 1992, 19 years later, she returned to the bridge. Against her boyfriend's pleadings, she drove 70 miles an hour to the North Platte River. With her two-year-old daughter and boyfriend at her side, she sat on the edge of the Fremont Canyon Bridge and she wept. Through her tears, she retold the story. The boyfriend didn't want the child to see her mother cry, so he carried the toddler to the car. That's when he heard the body hit the water. That's when Rebecca Thompson died her second death. The sun never dawned on Rebecca's dark night. What was it that drove her to that? Did she have the haunting remembrance of a situation that she just couldn't get past? Was there shame that was associated with her rape? Yeah. Was there guilt? Maybe some of that was there. See, she carried that body around for so long. Maybe she had the twisted logic that... Maybe it was my fault in this. How many of you have ever had something done to you, whether you're molested, raped, taken advantage of in a way, and you think, maybe I did something to bring this upon myself. It could be my fault. See, that moment in her life, that moment defined her. She died twice from that moment. She lived a life of living hell that, frankly, she was never intended to keep, but because of evil, she did. I want you to understand this word, guilt. Because I think we all carry some semblance of it. Guilt is from the devil and it has no way out. Guilt will wound you to the core. I'm going to say that again so we understand it. Guilt is from the devil and it has no way out. It will wound you to the core. I want you to ask yourself a serious question right now. Take stock of your life at all of our campuses. All of us have at least one moment. 
We have one moment in our life that time slowed down. We have one moment in our life that time stopped. We have one moment in our life that we can't get past, that the loop plays over and over and over again. Then we load the body up, we strap it to our back, and we just carry it wherever we go. Like I said, sometimes it's light, sometimes it's heavy, but it's never not there. Here's what the book of Romans says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be an offering. What we struggle with is guilt and something else called condemnation. Guilt and condemnation. Condemnation comes from Satan and is meant to tear you down. Condemnation always points out what a failure you are. Condemnation points through the problem, but it never shows you a solution. Jesus is the opposite of condemnation. The voice of Jesus doesn't say you're a mistake. Condemnation says you are a mistake. You are the sum total of the actions that you've done and the actions that have been done to you. That is what you are. Jesus came to set us free from those definitions, from that dead weight. Jesus I want you to understand me, is the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation shows you the problem and never shows you a solution. You're never going to hear God telling you what a fail you are. Even at your very worst moment, at your most embarrassing thing, at your most sinful, Jesus never comes and points a finger in your face and says, that's it. You are a failure. You're done. He never says that. Here's what Jesus says in John. He says, I came not to judge the world, but I came to save the world. Many people think that when they come into a church. You might have Hopefully not felt that when you came in here today, but maybe you grew up going to a church and every time you stepped into a building, it felt like a funeral. Are you with me? It was like a funeral dirge playing, do this, do that, stand up, sit down. I don't understand the routine. I just feel awful when I'm here. You guys look awful. I'd rather not come here anymore. Remind your face that you're alive. See, what that does is that reminds you that there's hell to pay. But Jesus says, yeah, for sure, there's hell to pay. We're all broken. We're all sinners. There's a cost to that. The difference is Jesus paid it. His blood was poured out on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago. He paid that debt in full so we wouldn't have to live in hell right now. See, mistake and shame. Condemnation says you are a mistake. When I was in my early 20s, it wasn't that long ago. I'm like super young. But when I was in my early 20s, I was newly married, and I, just to give you a little bit of my background, if you don't know, I'm a pastor's kid. I was raised in Pentecostal church. My parents are still pastors, and my parents raised me right. Uh, I just grew up to be uh, very cynical. That's something that I still, with, still deal with, cynical and prideful. Uh, I also saw some things behind the scenes at church that church wasn't supposed to be about. See, sometimes uh, when people get a little bit too in the mix and off the mission, so the mission of the church is to reach people who are far from God, but people get too in the mix uh, about who's in charge, who's doing what, you see some ugly things. And unfortunately, I think I saw some ugly things in my hyper-Pentecostal upbringing. I was also sinful and also wanted to do what I wanted to do and not lead my wife well. So I chose at that time in my life that I was just done with church. Have you ever been there with me? Don't, please don't lie. Don't make you feel, you just wanted to be done. I'm tired of the rules. I'm tired of it. I just kind of want to do what I want to do. So I just did what I wanted to do. I was very bitter towards church. But I would go back now and again, uh, whether to my parents' church or a church where I lived in Lancaster then, and I always had a really hard time with the music in church. And I know uh, the mu- church music is what I do for a job, but I always had a really hard time with the music then because I had a hard time singing, but I had a hard time singing the name of Jesus. It was the weirdest conundrum to me. I had the hardest time singing the name of Jesus, and it was almost like I would start to cry. But you might not know me very well. Uh, I am not fond of crying in front of people. Uh, I am very much a jerk 
So I don't want to cry in front of you. So I don't even want to show you that, that part of myself. But I couldn't utter the name Jesus in a song without starting to break down and cry. And I just wanted to shut that part of myself off. So I don't want to go there anymore. And that's different than guilt and shame. What that was is that God was dealing in my heart with, in a very interesting way. And the word for that, I believe, is called conviction. You might call it your conscience. I call it Holy Spirit conviction because I knew what was right. I knew there was power in the name of Jesus. I knew he wanted to set me free. I knew what I was dealing with, it was a me issue. It wasn't a church issue. It was no one's fault. It was a me issue. And I was experiencing something called Holy Spirit conviction. Conviction is a reminder for us. This is what I believe it is. Conviction is from God, and it's a way out. It's the warning light that tells you something's wrong. It's filled with life. I want you to hear that today if you're experiencing conviction in the presence of God. It's from God and has a way out. It's the warning light that tells you something is wrong. It's filled with life. Conviction is known in the Bible as godly sorrow. God's word tells us that godly sorrow is that what leads to repentance. Condemnation tells you, you're a failure. Look at what you did. Conviction tells you, come to me and I'll forgive you. Not only is God willing to forgive us, but God, he longs to do it. The words that are used in the Bible are passionate words. God longs to bring us home. In Isaiah, it says this. I want you to track along with me. It says, therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. In Psalms, it says this. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and rich in love. And the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all, not some, but all that he has made. The difference is God knows our past, he knows our darkest, and he chooses to walk with us today. He doesn't choose to count us out, doesn't choose to push us away. Conviction shows you the answer, condemnation shows you the problem. I want us to hear this again today. Conviction that comes from God, that shows us the answer. Condemnation that tells you you're a mistake, you are the sum total of your sins, that shows you the problem. Condemnation in your life will always bring up failures, and always at the weirdest times. How many of you guys have ever thought in your life, strangest time, hang out with your kids, and you think, you, you can't be a good dad. Who are you to hang out with these kids? Hanging out with your wife. Who are you to do this? Do you remember what you, what you did when you were younger? Do you remember what you did last night? How can you do this? How can you raise your hands in church? How can you do any of this? That voice, how many of you experienced that on our campus? I think that's a real thing. That's condemnation. See, we're a product of our past. We're not a prisoner to it. I want you to remember this. The scars of your past may remain, but only as a reminder of his grace. First John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't cleanse us a little bit. He doesn't leave us part of the way. He takes all of our sin, and his word says he throws it as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he removes our transgressions from us. How you allow yourself to think upon your past will define your future. How you allow yourself to think about your past will define your future. You cannot look behind you and expect to get where you're going all the time. Number two, God does not expect me to repay my past. I want us to hear that again. God does not expect me, does not expect you to repay your past. See, religion, what it does, it takes your actions and God's love and puts those things on equal footing. It says, what I can do, I can do this much good and then it'll kind of weigh out at the end. This much bad and then I have a debt to pay. If I do these bad things, I can say these magic words and hold this magic necklace and then my sins will magically disappear until I do the same things tomorrow and then I do the same magic words with the same magic necklace. I'm going to tell you frankly, that's nonsense. You and God are not on equal footings. He is holy God. You are man. 
What that does is that weighs you down with baggage, almost to the point, and I think I've been at that point, and maybe you're at that point where you think, I have too much in my ledger, too much red. I'm just done. I'm just done with church. I'm just done with God. I'm never going to measure up. How many of you felt like that at our campuses? I'm done. I'm done trying. I can't do it. This is what Jesus says about our debts. We're going to Matthew 18. Then Peter, Jesus' disciple, Peter said to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? He's looking for a way out. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or seven times, seven times. Jesus wasn't trying to get Peter to do math. He knew Peter wasn't that smart. What Jesus was saying there in plain English, so we understand it, he was saying, infinity times, infinity times do you forgive. No matter how much someone messes up, infinity times do you forgive. It's a number that you can't count, that you can't understand. So not seven, you're not free, infinity times, because that's how I am. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt and just let him go. That might ring true for some of us, but let me kind of break this down in our terms today. The actual money they talked about here was probably equivalent to 200,000 years worth of wages. This is something the servant could never repay. He could work day and night, night and day, a thousand lifetimes, he could never do it. This was an insurmountable odds. And what Jesus is saying here, listen, your sin, the amount of sin that you have compared to my holiness, it's unbelievable. You can't comprehend it. Over 200,000 years worth of sin and debt. So instead of making you pay it back and do a bunch of stuff that you don't understand and frankly you can't do because I'm perfect, it's just gone. It's gone because of Jesus. See, religion says you repay. I want to hear this. Religion says you repay. You do something. There's an exchange there. This is a debt-debtor relationship. Grace says it's been paid. It's over. Number three, I want us to understand, God does not expect me to be perfect. How many of you guys have felt that weight before? I feel the weight of being perfect. I like to listen to podcasts. How many of you guys are podcast people? I love, I love podcasts. I listen to all sorts of nerdy podcasts about different subjects. But this podcast I was listening to the other day was talking about Japanese culture. How many of you guys have studied Japanese culture? Okay, whatever, dude. You can fact check me then. Uh, we got one. We got one. Well, this is what I heard in a podcast. It's pretty true. I'll give you the source because I Googled it then. So apparently in Japanese culture, there's some sort of hierarchy of bathing rituals. So they live in a home where generations of people live, like grandma, mom and dad, and then kids. And they have a bathing ritual where in their bathrooms, I looked at a picture online too, there's like a shower chair that you sit in this chair, you spray yourself off in the chair, but then there's one tub with hot water and the water's always hot. Everyone uses the tub. Okay, not everyone just uses the tub. The same water, it's not filtered out. It goes from order, from order of oldest to youngest. So just take example, like uh, in my house, it would be like my parents and maybe like my, my grandma, my kid's great-grandma. So we all live in a house, all these generations. So in this water, my great-grandma, who is 98, she would use the water first. And then my mom and dad, as a sign of respect. And then me and my wife. And then my daughter Addison. And then Jude. And then young Kellen. He would get in the wall. He would get in the water. And then in the water now is hair, dead skin, funk, from under funk. I mean, all, 
all kinds of stuff that I don't want to comprehend. And it even goes so far as that they have like, <laughs> they have tools that are used, like these special tools that you put next thing, that you scoop the bad stuff out of the water, like a hair scraper and this dead skin scraper, and they put them aside and the water stays hot and you use it. How many of you guys can agree with me? That's dumb. That, 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 that's a dumb way to bathe, especially in our modern society. Now, our culture is not above theirs in any way. We do dumb stuff in our culture. Watch the news. We do tons of dumb things. Pokemon Go is dumb. I mean, I don't know what's worse. We play Pokemon. I think that came from Japan, so either way, we're both dumb. But equally, everyone does dumb stuff. But I can say unequivocally that this is a dumb ritual. And I can say that because we won that war. So you can't come against me. That happened a long time ago. Our bathing ritual, if you do it, just shower and then be done with it, is done. But this is how we view God that we need to clean up before we get in the water. Before we come to Jesus, we think we need to clean up. We think we need to wash ourselves of our addiction. We need to wash ourselves of our shame. Well, we are promiscuous. We are promiscuous. I can't go there because I'm still dealing with this. Maybe you're in the midst of an affair and you think, not right now. I can't do this. Maybe you're divorced and you think, not clean enough. Give me some time by myself and then I'll come. This is what Ephesians says. He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We're going to go back to that in a second. Just to make this really clear, so we're at church right now. I'm talking to you. I'm on better behavior because we don't know each other that well. There's certain things that I'm not going to do on stage, hopefully. I'm not going to burp on stage. I'm not going to cuss on stage because I don't cuss. Uh, I'm not going to fart. I'm not going to do things like I'm not going to do embarrassing things on stage. Uh, if you come to me afterwards and say, I really didn't like what you have to say, I'm probably going to be kind to you. Um, then there's people that I know better, people like my family, who know me on a different level. So there's certain ways I act around them. They know me uh, as dad and husband, uh, but they also know me to be short-tempered sometimes. They also uh, know me to be sinful at times. They also know me to be angry at times. Uh, they know my shortcomings. My wife, for sure, she knows my shortcomings because she's lived with me for almost 11 years. So they know me on a different level. And you all have people in your life like that. So we all have different levels. We let people know us. Well, then there's a level that God knows me. There's a level that God knows you. So God knows who I really am. God knows my thoughts. He, his word says that he perceives my thoughts from afar. So God knows every time I murdered somebody, which happens all the time. Don't lie, you murder people too. God knows that every time I've had a lustful thought. God knows uh, every sin that I've ever committed, but also ones that I've thought about committing. Now think about that. Think about your very worst that happens only inside of here that only you know and then understand that God knows them too, that he perceived your thoughts from afar and then understand that in Ephesians he says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. How can those things exist together? How can the God who knows me and loves me, who perceives my thoughts from afar, every wicked deed I've done, every wicked thief I thought about, and still says, you know what? I see it. I saw it before it happened, and I'm still going to die for you. And you're not anybody, but yet, John, you're now my son. So you have an inheritance that can never be shaken. You're now my daughter. You have something that you could never earn, but that can never be taken from you. God chooses to love us in the middle of our darkest sin, but I don't think we understand that. See, when you think God's love depends on your performance, you'll stop trusting him. And that's a truth that I need to hear over and over and over again. I think we need to hear it too. That when you think God's love depends on your performance, you'll stop trusting him. So I have three children. One of them is always in trouble at bedtime. Sometimes it's a different one. Most of the time it's the same one. So there's seven nights a week. 
Six or seven out of seven nights, it's always my son Jude. He always goes to bed early. And I'm not dogging him. He's going to know this. He might hear this. He'll admit to you many nights at 6.30, he's just done. He's in bed. Normal bedtime's 8.30. Keep a bedtime. It's good for him. But 6.30 bedtime is what he earns for himself sometimes. I don't even think about it or argue. I'm like, hey, you know you're done for the night. Go to your room. It's not even a big deal anymore. He's used to it. For some reason, he is my instrument of being made more like Jesus and make me more patient, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work. But do you know what's interesting about this? Every morning, I try to have the same routine. I'm in the same chair at the same time early in the morning trying to read my Bible. It doesn't make me holy. That just makes me a creature of habit. And hopefully, you have a habit like that too. But I sit in the same chair. My chair faces the steps. And at about 6 o'clock in the morning, my son Jude, who's 6, he comes down those steps. And do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't cower. He doesn't. In fact, he doesn't care. He literally, he, he forgot what happened the night before. He forgot it five minutes afterwards. He's a special kid. But... He doesn't cower in my presence. All he does is come down the stairs in his undersized Transformers robe that probably fits his younger brother now that he don't care. He doesn't care about much. Rolls down the steps, gives me a hug, and tries to watch Wildcrafts. That's it. He doesn't think, oh, man, I got in trouble last night. Dad's still mad. Dad's angry. I, I better earn this back. I better earn his approval back. He doesn't think that at all. So I already told you how sinful I am, which I'm for sure super sinful, super prideful. I can be real vindictive. So if me in my sinful state doesn't make my son earn his love, God who is perfect, he doesn't want that from you. See, that should be our attitude towards Jesus and how we act. We should have the attitude of Jude. That a righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. He understands who the father is. We all, everyone within the sound of my voice, you long for the affections of a father. Some of you guys had a good dad. Some of you had a bad dad. Some of you had no dad to speak of at all. And you're trying to figure it out on your own. You're a father now. Here's our example. Don't make your kids earn your love. Don't take your presence from them because God doesn't take it from us. When we're sick, when we're filthy, when we're sinful, God doesn't remove his hand from us. God calls us closer. That's for everyone today. I know we're all carrying a weight of guilt and shame around our neck, a loop that plays over and over again in our mind. And Jesus says, I came to set you free. We long for the affections of that father today, that perfect, loving father and he waits. And one thing he's waiting for is an invitation. Number four, as I wrap up, God expects an invitation. He doesn't expect us to replay our sins. He doesn't want us to repay them. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He even says our best deeds are like filthy rags. But what God expects from us is an invitation. People don't give an invitation with their love. That's called rape. Just to be real frank, God is not that today. God doesn't come to rape us or force himself on us or command his love. He gave us free will. But God expects us out of our brokenness, out of our lack, out of our sin, out of our shame and our guilt, with that weight strapped onto our back, God expects an invitation. And Mark, it says this. And it happened that he, meaning Jesus, was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples Let's push pause right there. Let's understand what they're saying when they're saying tax collectors and sinners. So we view tax collectors as the IRS. We don't like them either. But it wasn't saying this is the IRS you're, di you're, you're dining with. Jesus was saying these are the unclean people. So in our society, who, whatever people group you think are unclean, that's who Jesus was with, whether it's prostitutes, whether it's people who have a different sexual preference than you, uh, whether that's anyone else who doesn't... Uh, have your values in life. This is who Jesus 
was about. He says this, when the scribes of the, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, he said to his, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners? So we understand the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the religious people. They were the people who knew the rules and tried to follow every single rule. Hearing them, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When our church starts to be filled with a bunch of people who know the rules, we have lost the mission. When your life is filled with people who know all the rules, but have none of the passion and the desire to see people who are far from God, if they forget who they were when they met Christ, your life has lost its mission. The mission of your life is to reach people far from God. The mission of Jesus Christ is to reach people far from God. A lot of times we carry this weight on our back, trying to repay a debt that's never ours trying to shake a dead body because we think if we stick in our sin, somehow it's just going to change. And the word is, it's never going to change. On all of our campuses, I want to stand up right now, bow our heads and close our eyes because I think God is working this moment out for some of us in this place right now. Whether you've been a Christian for 20 years, you have no idea why you're here, I believe we're all saddled with the past or else we wouldn't need grace, we wouldn't need redemption that's found in Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will bring you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will bring you rest. What Jesus doesn't say is come to me if. Come to me when you're clean. Come to me when you're done with that addiction. Come to me when you stop the affair. Come to me when you stop drinking. Come to me after you can stop yourself from looking at pornography. Come to me after that same-sex relationship is over. He says, come to me all. Not some, but all. That means every person within the sound of my voice, God is calling you, and he's not forcing you, but he's giving you a choice whether to accept him or reject him. He doesn't want you to leave this place the same way that you came in. At the same way that you came in is weary and heavy laden carrying a weight that was never meant for you to own. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Grace isn't far off. Grace is right here. Grace is right now at all of our campuses. I want you to take stock of your life because the maker of heaven and earth, the one who has commissioned you, I think, to do good works before the foundations of the earth, he's calling you home at this moment. He calls you his son or his daughter. He wants to take the label that was given you that you were carrying around for maybe your entire life and take it off your back so you can be made new, not different, new. So those scars that you carry don't have to be scars. They are just reminders of his grace. You may walk with a limp, but that limp is going to bring other people who are in your spot to Jesus. God wants to do something significant and more than you can ask, seek, or imagine with your life, but you have to invite him. So everyone within the sound of my voice, campus pastors in the front of the room, what we're going to do right now is we're going to give you an invitation. We're going to give you an opportunity to invite the maker of heaven and earth, the one who can heal all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're going to invite him into our lives. And it's as simple as acknowledging him with your hand raised. So across this room right now in Phoenixville, in Limerick and in Plymouth meeting, I'm begging you to not let this moment pass. I'm begging you to let Jesus take your burden. He's going to exchange it for something that is life. 
He's going to set you free today. He's able to save, as his word says, and save completely. To save your life, to redeem it from death, hell, and the grave. There is hell to pay, and he paid. And if that's you in this place, Phoenix, uh, Plymouth Meeting or Limerick, and the sound of my voice, I want you to raise your hand with me right now and say, Pastor, that's me. I came in carrying a weight that was never mine to carry, saddled by addiction and brokenness, far off. I was far away from you, but I want Jesus to bring me near. I invite him into my life. If that's you in our house today, any of our campuses, I see you to my left right now. If that's you in this place today, I see you right in front of me right now. If that's you in this place, don't let this moment pass you. If that's you at our campuses at Limerick and Plymouth Meeting, let's stay in this moment right now. Let God take you. Let God exchange your brokenness for something new. If that's you in this house in Phoenixville, in Plymouth Meeting in Limerick, God wants to give you a fresh start today. You just have to invite him. That's you. I'm going to give you one more moment. Raise your hand. We have three in Limerick right now. We have one more in Plymouth meeting. The reason that we clap, the reason that we clap is not to put a spotlight on your life. It's put a spotlight on Jesus. His word says that there's no one righteous, no, not one. But it says that heaven itself stops and rejoices when only one person comes to know Jesus. Church, if that doesn't stir your heart, maybe you need to know him today. We didn't see one person. We saw six or seven people just this service make a decision to follow Jesus. Their lives are now taken from death into life. Not only is their eternity sealed, but every waking moment now can be spent with their maker. God can heal those wounds. Don't let it pass. Church, that's our heartbeat today. Before we leave here, I want to tell you, that is the heartbeat of Journey Church, to reach people far from God. Those who the church has called for years, you are out. God says that you're in by grace. Let's pray. Father God, you do what only you can do. Everything else that we stack up against you is really meaningless. It's a privilege to be in your presence. It's a privilege to hear from your word. It's a privilege to sing about you and your goodness. Your word says that our lives are but a vapor we thank you for redeeming them. I pray for my friends here and at our campuses right now who made the bold decision today to invite you into your lives. I pray that the enemy would never snatch that away. That this would be start of something great of more than they could ask, seek, or imagine. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's clap for that today.